I'm just not a fan of San Francisco at all. I agree. I agree. Never been a fan. Don't get it. As a city, I find it pretentious, and I've lived in New York and, and London, which are London's not pretentious. New York certainly is pretentious. But I find San Francisco, look, it's such a narrow thinking. Unless you went, unless you went to Stanford and unless you worked in tech, you are persona non grata. Yeah. Well, it's like Washington, D.C. If you're not in politics in D.C. or government, you're nobody. No one gives a shit, right? Yeah. No, no one cares. Yeah. And L.A., if you're not in, in the showbiz, nobody cares about you. You're not you're nobody. But I think L.A., LA you get away, I think L.A., you get away with it because it's just a nice place to live. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, that's where I lived for six years. But when I left L.A. I didn't know I, that. I didn't know you lived in L.A. for six years. Yeah, after I left Hong Kong, when it when Hong Kong imploded, I went back to L.A. and worked on the buy side in 2000 to 2006. And then I went back to Lehman in Hong we, Kong. We were here capital then. We were capital then. No, I worked with a tiger cub offshoot called Big Sky, Peter Early, who was the like. Uh, Are you, did, you work with Peter, did you work with Peter Early? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to stay, but I just got sick of it. By the time, you know what? Orson Welles has a great line about Los Angeles. He said, Los Angeles can't wait for you to leave. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about this just like, hey, move on, get out, and let me have a chance. Get lost, do fresh blood. New York and London are not like that. New York is like, hey, you know what? If you fall off the edge, tough luck, sorry. I wish you could stay here longer, but we're not going to come and get you. Tough luck. People pretty much are well-wishers in New York, more or less. Same in London. L.A., there's not well-wishers. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't give a shit, right? Because it's, 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 it's funny how New York has, this, has this, this, this perception of New York being so uber-competitive, right? There's probably no more competitive place in Los Angeles in the, in the industry that defines Los Angeles, which is entertainment. Correct. It's ruthless. Yeah, correct, and, and, correct, and, correct. And, Paul, because we have a podcast... There's no way we can avoid having a conversation about Will Smith. Fuck it, we're going to go. We're going. We're going into. We're going to go in this into this realm. I would love to hear your thoughts on Will Smith. Pretty much, I've asked. I've asked the entire world about this. I find the whole thing just fucking fascinating and just a, an indictment on the world that we live in. Yeah, I, I think that you know one of my friends put it really well. I think as we all enter back into the world of normalcy and you know and and sort of our going back to stressful, anxious, crowded gatherings with grown-up clothes on. A lot of us have social autism. We don't know how to behave. And I think in the media, there was a lot of shade being thrown on Jada Pinkett Smith for reasons that she was not being a good wife or something like that, or that she was just being like a bad, a bad player in the whole Hollywood thing. And who cares if Chris Rock didn't know she had alopecia and this, this and that. It, it's part and parcel. Uh, it, it's, it's the same thing as the guy who goes you know, bonkers on the plane. This is what yeah. happened. You know, we see guys going bonkers on airplanes every 10 minutes. And luckily, I didn't have any bad experiences. I was in like eight cities and running around in airports and airplanes and hotels. And I, everybody was generally pretty, pretty good and pretty, pretty well-spirited. In L.A., San Francisco, Florida, New York, everybody was pretty good. So I, I had no complaints. I didn't have any bizarre, strange experiences in airports or in hotels or in airplanes. So I was pretty lucky. But I think we all have social autism. And I think he was getting sick and tired of sort of the shade that was being thrown on his wife. I, I don't know her. I don't know what was going on. 
I think there was some like sort of noise about her being a bad sport, put it that way. And so I think he probably just had enough of it. I think he's going to get censored by the, censured by the Academy. I don't know what that means. Chris Rock will not sue him. Chris Rock could sue him for like a million dollars and but, get a million Chris, dollars. Chris Rock comes out of this. But as, as, as Scott Galloway, who, is, who I am a big fan of, said in his uh, podcast Pivot today, that the, the, the job of a, of a true man is to de-escalate. And Chris Rock de-escalated. Someone came up and punched him in the mouth and he de-escalated. And again, I have no view on Chris Rock. I frankly have no view on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air either. But again, it's, um, you know, I think that the de-escalation element of this was, I think, very important. And put it the way, I've had conversations with my son about this. I've had conversations with Courtney about this. It's sort of very indicative of where we are. But mate, so let's bring this back to, bring this back to a sort of a, a financial element, which is why we are here. It never ceases to amaze me how many people make the finance industry look good. And <laughs> well, Hollywood, Hollywood, we don't have scandals anymore. We, we have the occasional scandal. We don't really have scandals anymore. We're boring these days. Um, right. Well, except Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse is the new Deutsche Bank. Um, right. So, you know, they're, they're the ones who are the, um, the tar baby for corruption. But that was funny because I was talking to somebody in L.A. when I lived in L.A. And they were saying, you know, all we do is make movies and you either like them or you don't like them. And people buy a ticket or they don't buy a ticket. You guys in like New York in the financial system, you destroy markets, you destroy lives, you guys destroy systems and you can't even explain how you destroyed them. And that's their take. Right. We just buy tickets in Hollywood. You guys like wreck financial systems for 10 years. That's really hard to do. I think Hollywood is higher up on the food chain than investment banking, probably. Probably undeserved. But uh, so, mate, so where, so where, are we, where are we in the last week? Our conversation last week was about the curve inversion and the lessons from curve inversion. Two's tens inverted today, which is probably if there was one area of the curve where historically that has led to true messaging about both Fed policy and markets, it was curve inversion in two's tens. And that has happened as of about an hour ago. I'm confused about what's going on. And frankly, if I look at the view, the view from the peak client base, which is a, a wide cross-section cross of people where you have a wide cross-section of clients as well, um, I haven't been, they have not been this confused in a very, very long time. Not, not since for me, the, the biggest amount of confusion for me was the, bre- the announcement of Brexit back in 2016 or the the referendum back then that was a really confusing time for people because you had this an US economy a global economy which was which was deteriorating at that stage and you just had the you know, the effectable at the time the effective you know disillusionment of the of the EU as we knew it at the time people were really confused then not as confused as they are now we don't people don't get why stocks are rallying people don't get why they get why rates have moved higher that's an inflation thing that's straightforward but how you can have that with strong equity markets in the in in that backdrop is something which i a lot of the, the smart people i speak to and you and i are blessed that we speak to a lot of smart people just don't get it yeah, so I think we have to distinguish between the public sector and the private sector. And I, I think that the yield curve is a curve of, of, of government, right, government securities. And of course, 
you know, what we know and what, you know, has lingered over all conversations, it's the elephant in the room, is that the public sector took risk away from the private sector in 2008 and gave it to the taxpayer. And as a result, not only did we build up like $10 trillion in, in government, in federal government debt, don't forget how much municipal debt was built up. I mean, California ran up $3 trillion in municipal debt. I mean, that's why California looks beautiful. I thought California was going to fall apart in 2007, 2008. But hey, $3 trillion gets you a lot of parks and trams and trains and, and, and refurbishment and so forth. And so, so we are looking at a government structure that is very, very weak. And we're looking at a private sector that is very, very strong. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you my client feedback is I think growth, growth, which includes the private sector mostly, it's 64% of the economy is private, right? In America, 36 is government. That growth is very likely to surprise on the upside. Inflation is likely to surprise on the upside. And so nominal growth is going to be really strong. And so that's going to give you top line growth that's going to be pretty, pretty good. And that 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 kind of gives you free margin expansion. I'm just I'm giving you the line. I'm giving you the line here of of, of what I've heard. So that's the distinction between the private sector and the public sector. I very much see why the yield curve is inverting. Don't forget what happened in Japan. What happened in Japan was even though the yield curve in Japan was basically flat as a pancake for years and years and years. The uh, Nikkei 400 exploded up. The Nikkei 400 has been a great performer, mm. right? And so, so this is important to remember. And, and there's been a lot of there's been a lot of birth of, of of great companies in Japan. A lot of really neat technology, gaming, healthcare, pharmaceuticals. Even the property sector has come back to life. And so, can the private sector march on as the as the public sector struggles? Here's where I come down. The Fed is going to have to stop all of its talk about ending QE and so forth as and when these rates turn negative, because the Federal Reserve will have zero tolerance for negative rates. And we're we're on the verge of... As in you three are on the verge of having negative interest rates in the US. If you keep raising rates without a sturdy, productivity-led, real GDP-led economy, rates will turn negative. Of course they will. Look, I mean, look what happened in Europe. Look what happened in Japan. And I wrote, I, yeah, I wrote, I wrote about that in July of last year, said that by, by 2025, we'd have a negative, sorry, by 2024, we'd have a negative 10-year yield. But certainly, yes. there's, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And so, so, so I always look at the Federal Reserve as the oil pan. The oil pan in a car is always going to, the oil pan is like one of the most important parts of a car, funnily enough, because all the oil that keeps the car lubricated has to go somewhere when the engine's idling, right? And, and, and it goes to the oil pan, and then it gets sucked back up again when the oil gets going. That's what the Federal Reserve does. The Federal Reserve doesn't do quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is done to the Fed, because that money gets sucked out, the excess money gets sucked out to make rates go up, to make rates go up below above zero right and and that's what the fed keeps on doing and and that's why the 7 trillion is not there because it 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 it's good for the economy or because the fed thinks it's the right thing to do it's there because if it's not there rates would be like minus 3 in america 
right? The money is taken out of the system when it is in the Fed. Deposits are pulled out of the banks and into the Fed's balance sheet, right? The, the cash deposits that are assets of the banks become liabilities of the Federal Reserve as sort of voluntary reserve deposits. And then those are used to buy government bonds. And, and the system keeps functioning, right, to make rates go up. And so I worry that we're kidding ourselves if we suddenly have to see rates turn negative. The, the, uh, the Fed must, it, it's not like the Fed should stop. The Fed must stop and, and indulge in QE because the Federal Reserve is a, 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 lives in the world of the ghost of Christmas past, which is deflation, right, from the depression. Mm. And negative negative yields destroy banking systems. Negative, and look what happened in Europe. Look what happened in Japan. Right, the banks, Deutsche Bank went to 0.2 times book. All the European banks were at 0.3 times book. The U.S. banks are at 1.6 times book. And so, if you get negative rates, the the banks will drop 80 percent. Right, but we've, got, we've is, obviously got steps between that, right? So today, correct, it, correct, correct. Two's tens inverted, right? So it's very funny you talk about about robust growth. So I was looking at the Atlanta Fed GDP now numbers, which for any of you who don't know that, it's a it's a number of a forecast of forward looking quarterly GDP growth by the Atlanta Federal Reserve, and that's currently at 0.9 percent for the for the current quarter. In real terms. In real terms, yeah. Obviously, obviously, in nominal terms that's close to nine, right? You give a give or take, <laughs> right? Nominal no, terms are close I, to nine, right? I heard I heard a great phrase on that from uh, a very large person who was one of the top people in the, in the Fed, and his first name is Larry, and his last name starts with L. And he said, "Look, we don't know the difference between all the experts at the Fed who are like thirty-five year economists. We don't really know." How much of the growth in nominal terms is inflation and how much is real, right? Real growth, productivity-led growth, right? We just don't know. It's very hard. But let's just say it's 50-50. When it goes above six, we tighten. When it goes below three, we loosen. That's what we've been doing for the last like 70 years. That's about as sophisticated as it gets. Now, we are in a world where it is possible, Paul, as you just pointed out, 85% or 80% of the growth in the United States right now could be inflation and 15% could be real productivity-led growth. That right. is really, really bad. That's very problematic, mm. right? Where, where the only kind of growth you're getting is, is basically prices, price increases rather than productivity, right? And so I think that's where uh, the Fed is really stumbling right now in terms of understanding how you get real growth up and nominal growth down by using interest rates. And I just don't think that's, that's a non-starter. That's not the way it works. Well, and particularly, mate, in the, in the context when the inflation that's being driven by this economy is being driven by forces which are not monetary forces, right? You know, yeah. Higher oil and gas price, higher oil prices are not a monetary phenomenon. They're a Russia phenomenon. Yeah, higher yeah, supply chain disruptions due to COVID are not monetary phenomena. So, mate, you and I have talked about this a lot. I will argue to the cows come home. And for someone who lives in Chicago and who often, often visits the University of Chicago, I'm about to be banned from that place because money does not create inflation. I got 40 years no. worth of evidence that says it doesn't. Ask anyone who ever walked into the 
the bank into the hollowed halls of the Bank of Japan where the money printing creates inflation. It doesn't, it does not. So what we credit growth creates inflation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Literally, we've gone into a gunfight with a saber and expecting to win because we've got the wrong instrument. I agree. I agree. I think that's absolutely right. I think that right now what we have is an aggressive labor, very aggressive labor market looking for a wage increases at a time when the banking system is actually pretty robust and, and, and working and functioning well. And and, and the two of these are, are working in tandem. Uh, I, I think these other external shocks are adding fuel to the fire, of course. The Ukraine agricultural uh, impact is huge. In three areas, right? It's not just grains. It's huge in uh, number one, which is really important for the, the 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 food chain, is the fertilizers. You know, Ukraine's one of the largest fertilizer exporters in the world. It's also one of the larger sunflower oil exporters in the world, and that's like spreading all into your oils, right? For all mm-hmm. of your cooking for the world, right? And, and so, so, so I, I think I think these are real effects. As much as we want to say that that they are. You know that 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 you can deal with with them in in, in various ways. They're they're real effects, and they're going to have real import. And I don't care what anybody says. Ukraine's going to have a failed crop this year. Forget it. I mean, the whole yeah. infrastructure of the country has been destroyed in four weeks, mm. including the ports. But we have good. We have. We seem to be getting better news out of Ukraine in terms of. Sorry to use the to use the the financial cliche. Paul, we have green shoots. Green, green shoots of optimism in regards to potentially a ceasefire was what was being bandied around today. Again, we believe it when we see it. While areas around Kiev are being shelled by Russians, I mean, come on, I, I, I just don't buy it. I, that's not the way civil wars end. Civil wars don't end after four weeks. You know, they, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. I know that Zelensky has changed his tune in the last, you know, 48 hours compared to even last week. Yep. The Wagner Group is a very a bunch of extremely vicious murderers who have come from Africa, Mali, Angola, Mozambique, fighting uh, these nasty wars in uh, Africa for the last 10 years. And they have come to the shores of Ukraine, and they're very good at assassination, murder, terrorizing neighborhoods. And that's uh, right. Just sorry, walk through, walk through what the Wagner Group is. The Wagner Group is a private, allegedly private sector organization of mercenaries, very large, very vicious. These are your like people who are too, too like awful to be in the Russian army, which says a lot. And they belong to the guy who's Putin's. You've heard of this Putin, this guy who is uh, Putin's number one guy, who's called a uh, Putin chef, right? The, the the guy. I think he also is is has crazy investments attached to his name, and so he's very close to Putin. This group answers to him. So guess who the Wagner Group ultimately answers to? Right. And so Russian government officially denies having any connection to the Wagner Group. They officially deny it even exists, but they've been fighting Eric Prince and his Blackwater friends and the U.S. Army uh, Special Forces in Africa for the last 10 years for resources and, and such in Africa. Now they've come to Ukraine, and they're the ones who are doing all of this awful stuff in uh, Mariupol right now in terrible terrible things and what's happened what, what why does the russian is, government need if the russian army was so strong why do they need them the russian army has been a catastrophe in ukraine they bungled it their logistics their tactics their strategy has been a catastrophe they've lost hundreds literally i looked at the number hundreds of tanks and armored personnel carrier and 
petrol tankers, helicopters, aircraft, uh, fighter jets. I mean, they've lost more of every single one of those than they lost in, in, the, in the first 10, in the, in the whole 10 years of the Afghan war, including, you know, 15,000 soldiers and probably 50 to 60,000 uh, injured. And so you're talking about a degradation of your forces of something like potentially 20%. I was talking to some, some ex-MI6 uh, people who I helped out uh, a couple of years ago when they owe me and they run this intelligence consulting firm in London. And so we talk to each other all the time and they're really good at this stuff. And they were saying that, that this is a very significant degradation of, of the Russian army. You might have a million man army, but you only have like 150,000 real soldiers. And the, the people you're gonna throw into the front of the battle are the best. And you've just destroyed 20% of that. So you, and, mm. and you probably injured another 20%. The Russian army has been a disaster. And that's why they brought in the Wagner Group. And these guys are extremely nasty, nasty people. And what happens, Paul, is that the Russian soldiers get to a point where they're not afraid to fight. They're afraid about their family's well-being. And so they're being pulled away back to protect their family and away from the fight. And that's the whole point of terror, is to get people to draw them back into the cities to protect their uh, wives and children. And you you dissipate the army, and then you can kill them when they come back and try to uh, get their families. It's really awful. That's what terror does, right? And so that's what that's what the American revolutionaries did to the British army during the Revolutionary War. The exact same tactics, yeah. right? So, uh, and so, yes, yeah, so, so, but I was going to sort of get a pivot topic slightly and talk about sort of the, probably the big news item for the week, which was the EU. And the U.S. agreeing on, in principle, gas sales from the United States to Europe as a whole, which is going to be really difficult to do, given the fact that the number of LNG terminals that exist in Germany right now is zero. And unless someone is planning to build a very, very large pipeline in very, very short order across the Atlantic Ocean, it's going to be difficult for this stuff to actually get used. So we we did a, a call yesterday with the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies on the and talking about Rus Russian gas, it's going to be a problem for years. But talk a little bit about what you think about the purchase, the agreement in principle to for the US to sell gas to Europe. And is it, as I think, just far too little, far too late? Oh, yeah, I agree. I was going to say that, first of all, that there's a very limited number of you know LNG tankers, right? These are extremely expensive, extremely large. I think, I believe I heard yesterday there's only about 165 in the world. And that's just the not tankers very many. Themselves, the tankers themselves, yeah, the LNG tankers. The, yeah, the, yeah the, the, these massive things you see with the three domes and they're like 1,500 feet long ships. There's only about 160 of them. That's the problem, number one. Number, number two, you have to get the gas out of the ground. You have to transfer it to a, a, a type of, of chemical that can be transported. And then you have to re- make it into gas that's usable at home. So there's, there's like three processes. Yep. And number three, and most important, it's probably only about 15% of the, of the total requirements for Europe right now, right? And, and so all of those three together make me very skeptical about that, having any meaningful impact. That's why I, I keep coming back. I, I'm sorry, I just think that Putin's going to go because my conclusion in my trip last week seeing clients is that, Paul, is that it is so inordinately, unacceptably expensive to replace what is currently there for everybody. Japan, 20 billion, right? 
Nord Stream 2, how much would that cost to replace for Germany? Tens of billions, right? And years and years, right? And so whether it's Southeast Asia or Japan or Korea or Europe, everybody would be completely vulnerable for between five and seven years, and it would cost them an arm and a leg. And so when somebody's that inconvenient to the world, you you get rid of them. I'm sorry, uh, Biden misspoke. You saw the president of the European Council. Yes, last last week, the, the Belgian guy, I forget his name, he said Putin has to go, right? And, and, and these are nice Europeans. They're not like nasty Americans who replace the government every 10 minutes that they don't like. The, the, these are Europeans saying he has to go. And so so the history of, of Russia in every case, right, in the... Um, 1905 defeat of the the Russo-Japanese War. You had a you had a revolution, extremely violent. That's when Lenin's revolution got started. The, the defeat in World War One, the humiliation of the Cuban Missile Crisis in '62, the humiliation of Chernobyl in 1987 led to the complete you know the downfall. Trotsky getting an ice pick in, in the eyeball uh, is another way you you go, and so forth. And so when you get defeated in battle, you're out. Mm. The, yep. You know, the Tsar and his family were murdered for de- getting defeated in World War One. That's why they were murdered. <laughs> this is Russia, baby. Alexander II, he was blown up, mm. right? Murdered. I think he's a goner, and, and, and I'm still going to stick to that. Uh, and it probably will be internal. You saw Abramowitz was in Kiev last week negotiating secretly, and he got poisoned. Roman what was Abramovich. that? I heard, yeah, I was reading that yesterday, yeah. that the, the several members, both 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 Abramovich and and the members of the Ukrainian committee as well were had poison-like symptoms. Yep. I'm sure everybody in Moscow is terrified, but I think they're all, I, I heard a bird told me that they are all counting the days um, for Putin to get it to go. Fascinating. Fascinating. No, mate, one of the, the other issues with, uh, obviously, with Europe and their gas markets is you ask any European and they don't need, they're not going to sign 15-year contracts because they, across Europe, they believe that in 10 years' time, they don't need gas as much as they need it today, that renewables and, and nuclear will take up the slack. And that, that put it this way, I, I, I would argue that regardless of, of, of what happened in Ukraine, we were heading to this volatility in gas markets anyway because of the over-reliance on, on renewables and, and the, the, the fact that they cannot pick up the slack in the near term. So you're always going to have, you know, math. look, we went into this prior. So in Q4 of last year, European gas, gas storage levels were north of 80% capacity, right? We had storage problems then because there's just not the storage facilities being built, right? So when Germany goes and talks to Qatar about buying, buying gas from Qatar, Good luck, A, because Germany doesn't have any LNG terminals to actually take LNG from a ship, and B, even if they did, they've got nowhere to store it. Hmm. Yeah, it's got, yeah, yeah. But this is going to be a shit show for, for a long time. So, mate, tell me what the, tell me what the week entails. Well, see, I, I think what I'm hearing kind of in, in, in the noise of the market is interesting, Paul, because what I'm hearing is people are saying, like you said, you don't skip steps when you're looking at financial markets or you're going to get yourself in trouble. But I think oftentimes in the last couple of years, people are saying, ah, this is going to happen. This is what's next, without realizing that this has already happened, right? The crash has already happened, aside from like seven stocks. People are going to try to get out of these growth tech stocks for the next like 
five years because they're stuck and they're down 50, 60, 70%. So some of these stocks can rally like 50%. And then you can't even see it like on a five-year view. <laughs> you know, yep. it's, it's invisible, right? That's what happened in Asia, right? And during the two, after 2008, it took like, it took like eight years for Citibank to, to get half of its losses back. It took eight years, right? Yep. And, and some of these banks never got back, right? And so, so, so that's what we've already, the, the crash has already happened, except for maybe six or seven stocks. And the, and the debate is out rather, are these next? I'm afraid, I think there's going to be some further fallout. But there's a lot of stocks that are down 50, 60, 70%. And I was very surprised to see in, in a lot of my clients, two things. One, I'm going to start picking some of these up. I, I'm not sure. I'm going to do some homework, but I'm going to start picking some of these up because some of these guys are down. 70, 80%. And, and if nothing else, it's cheap optionality. Number two, I went on my trip with a very compelling case for value stocks that, that this is the time when value stocks are going to start outperforming. I've never talked like this in 10 years. You, you didn't hear that coming out of my mouth, right? Yeah. And, and I'm going to argue with you about something that I've been pushing and, and you disagree about with me. And they've done very, very well. It's the best performing sector out there. And I've been kind of pounding the table on these because they are the ultimate value stocks in the world right now. Dramatic uh, pause. Banks. Yes. Well, no, I do. I do completely disagree. I, I went out with a short recommendation on the XLF on Sunday. Curve invert, you know, if we go back to the basics, inverted yield curves are not good for banks. They're not good for banks. There's no, there's, there's no, I can see other value sectors. I, I, I get, Paul, if we're having a debate about energy being the ultimate value sector, I can have that. You and I are going to disagree on the bank side of things. I just don't see the attractiveness of money center banks, particularly mate, given, given, given your views on fintech and how behind the curve most of the global banking system, traditional banking system is in terms of the ways that the banking system will look like in, 10, in five years' time, which doesn't support Wells Fargo. Right. Okay, fine. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at some other banks that are trading at like 0.3 times book, 0.4 times book, 0.5 times book, not necessarily the US banks. For instance, I'll give you a, an example of a country. Uh, but by the way, as interest rates go up, banks behave like like oil, like gasoline companies, right? Where, where, where as, as, as the price of, you know, um, gasoline goes down, the gas, the, the gas stations take forever to lower their price. So they have this huge windfall. Banks are yep. guilty of the same thing between deposit rates and their and their funding, and so they're going to increase deposits very slow as their funding, you know, is is going to be in great shape. So so they're likely to increase their net interest margins on this. Thirdly, I'm looking at a country. There's a country that's growing at at 11 percent in real terms for th about three years in a row, and it's 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 a food exporter. And their debt is 20-year 20, 20 debt at 1%. And the banks are trading at 0.3 times book. And I'm thinking of a country that everybody hates, that whose banks are trading at 0.3 times book, that's growing at 11% in real terms, and, and is termed out 20-year debt at 1%. That country is called Greece. Mm. And there is massive Greek money being repatriated into Greece to buy property. Greece, Greece is becoming a, a real hot area for people who are looking to buy properties. And so that's just one example I would give you. But there's many other countries where um, the banks are, are trading at, at, at really good value. 
So, I'll give you some. Emerging, I'll give you the emerging world. I get the developed world. US, so US, Japan, UK, most of Europe, most of Europe, Australia, Canada can't can't have them. So we've gone on for a long, we've gone on for long enough. Have a have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you all shortly. Bye. Yeah.